Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me, unusually... In is, person. In person is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hello, Mike. We have combined our households into a, a larger bubble because <laughs> because it's okay to do here in BC, yep. which is amazing. Both of us have been off work. We've been hiding out on the inside. So yep. Yep. yeah, it's time for us to uh, actually record in the same room. It feels good. It does. Uh, Feels good. I'm so tired of hearing Robot Scott <laughs> over the uh, Zoom. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Chomp, chomp, chomp. Listeners who feel they are in crisis can contact the Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868 in the U.S. or the U.K. Text HOME to 741741. You'll be matched with a volunteer counsellor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is a free 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. Well, welcome back. Thank you. Back in the hood. Thank you. Back on the horse, as it were. Yeah, it feel it. This feels foreign now. You're right. <laughs> I was saying to Carol earlier today. I wonder how we're actually gonna feel when we ha- go and get our first haircut. It's gonna be bizarre. Yeah. I was thinking about that today, actually. Mm-hmm. But I, I haven't looked at the exact timelines of everything reopening here, but my understanding is by mid-June, they want things yeah. as back to normal as possible with, you know, safety precautions and stuff. But Exactly. And June 1st, the kids here in BC are going back to school, I heard today. You you, you were busy doing other things. I was assembling a barbecue all day. And so, but so I did- So you're having me over for a barbecue is what you're tomorrow, saying. Tomorrow, Yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to have something tomorrow if you guys want to head over. That would be good, actually. Uh, yeah, I th- well, I think it's, yeah, I, I, while I was out there, I heard the family listening to some press conference about it, and uh, 
whatever. They'll they'll fill me in when it's needed. Sure. <laughs> They'll update you, Mike. They, or they may not. They <laughs> probably don't want to go back to school. No, no. Olivia, yes. Violet, no. Yeah. Although the crimes we're talking about this week made international news when they occurred, they've even come up briefly in the news from time to time. Many of our listeners outside of New Brunswick may not be familiar with this 45-year-old case. <laughs> Just before Christmas in 1974, two Moncton police officers were executed by two men while on duty during an investigation into a kidnapping incident involving a 14-year-old boy. This is episode 125, Cold December, Constable O'Leary and Corporal Bourgeois. So did you say 45 years ago this took place? 45 years ago. I was barely alive. Moncton isn't a large city today. It's still only roughly 72,000 people. And in the mid-70s, when these events took place, it was around 58,000. Okay. So it's it's quite small. Very small. It's a nice place to make home and is well known for its East Coast style hospitality. And despite its low crime rate, friendly residents and small size, Moncton has seen more than its share of police officers murdered on duty. Really? The 1974 murders were not the first time. From the New Brunswick Police Officers Memorial website, quote, on August 1st, 1892, Constable Stedman was murdered while attempting to arrest two suspects implicated in the burglary of a store. A struggle ensued and four or five shots were fired. Other police officers came and found Constable Stedman wounded and shot in the chest, end quote. Holy shit. So that's 1892. I don't know what you're stealing from a store in 1892 that warrants gunfire. An anvil? Like what did they have in stores in 1892? Corn? It wasn't the last time either. A long-time listeners will recall episode 12 of Dark Poutine when we covered the 2014 murders of three members of the RCMP. They were Constables Fabrice Georges Gévaudin, Dave Joseph Ross, and Douglas James Larch. I remember that episode really well. Mm-hmm. We're going to go to Sai's Seafood Restaurant oh, in, in Moncton. I could use some fish and chips. And, and it, yeah, it was opened by Simon Cy Steen and his mother, Sarah, in the 1960s. Already known for a prior culinary venture, Cy's quickly became a fine dining favorite on Moncton's East Main Street. Mm-hmm. According to a promotional postcard published by Les Macaulay Photographers, the family-run establishment had a, quote, dining room serving maritime seafoods and steaks in pleasant air-conditioned surroundings overlooking the tide bore arrivals in the Petticodiac River. That's the place for seafood. Oh, absolutely. The East Coast, yeah. the, the Maritimes, for yeah. sure. And also there was a lounge, uh, the Seahorse Lounge, fully licensed for your pleasure. Just picture a lounge in the 60s and the 70s. You've oh, got yeah. it. I've seen the pictures. It's quite was great. Was it shaped like a seahorse? No, it was yeah, not. I'm disappointed. Size was well known for great food, a fantastic atmosphere, and an amazing view. And people say there is no view like it today Wow! in New Brunswick. According to communicator Brian Cormier on his website, briancormier.com, Size famous chef John Speranza was renowned for his recipes. Brian also posted a PDF copy of Speranza's recipes acquired when new by his mother, and he posted that on his website, and we'll link to everything in our show notes. Here's what he had to say about the booklet and the food at size. Quote, 
Some of Chef Speranza's recipes include lobster Newburg, stuffed oysters, baked stuffed shrimp, spaghetti carbonara, manicotti lasagna, oyster fiorentina, minestrone, pear parfait, and the highlight of the entire booklet, at least in my opinion, the incredibly addictive seafood casserole. In fact, that recipe was even mentioned in his obituary. In the late 60s, his seafood casserole recipe was introduced to the Canadian consumer through Salada Tea's great recipes from world-renowned chefs. I've tasted other seafood casseroles, he goes on, some very good ones at that, but they still pale in comparison to Chef Speranza's recipe. It would be a shame not to share it with the public so that his recipes can live on now that he's gone and the restaurant is but a memory in photos found on the vintage Moncton website, end quote. That's some high praise. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so it was one of the better seafood restaurants that you could probably go to in the Maritimes. See, sadly, I don't think I could enjoy all what these places have to offer because my seafood taste is, is very generic. Fish oh. and chips... Uh, I like some smoked salmon. I could take you to a seafood place where you would... The food is not fishy. If it's got a fishy taste to it, mm. it is actually not fresh. Because I don't like... I'm not a fan of lobster or crab. Oh, I don't like any kind of shellfish because yuck. Because yuck. <laughs> but it could be one of those examples of maybe I'm not the biggest fan because I just haven't had it done properly. So the weeks before Christmas are always busy ones for restaurants. Size was no exception. On the night of Thursday, December 12, 1974, around 10.30 p.m., Size's son, Raymond Steen, 14, and his grandmother, Sarah, were driven home and dropped off by one of the restaurant employees, Gene Stone, as Sai had to stay behind and close up. After Raymond and Sarah said their goodnights and got out of the car, Ms. Stone drove back to the restaurant. Raymond and Sarah unlocked the door and went into the house, and there they were startled by two short-statured men with stockings on their faces and pistols in their hands standing at the top of the stairway. Stockings over faces has never resulted in something positive. No, it's creepy looking, actually. Oh, it's terrifying. And yeah, it's it's not like, you, you know, surprise, it's your birthday. Like, no, no. no. If you got somebody's got a stocking over their face, it's it's business time. The men asked the frightened young man and his grandmother where Sai was. Sarah told the men Sai was still at the restaurant. Raymond later said, I thought about running out the door, but decided against it. Mm. I would have probably thought that too, mm-hmm. but there's grandma. You don't want to just leave her there and you can't drag her with yeah. you. So you're going you're gonna to stick around mm. for grandma's sake. But the fight or flight absolutely would be mechanism there. tendency is there. So without a doubt that... that oh shit, run, Yeah, would definitely pop into your head. As one of the men kept Raymond covered, the other bound Sarah to the stair railing with masking tape. Probably had to use a lot of it to, to bind masking somebody. Masking tape's not that. No. Yeah. How many rolls did they, like, did they come prepared? Shit, we're, why did you choose masking tape? We're going to need to bring like 12 rolls. Exactly. A balaclava was roughly jammed over Raymond's face backwards so he couldn't see. And one of the men walked Raymond out of the house and waited with him while the other went to get the car. This is starting to sound a lot like the Jimmy Pattison. Kidnapping? Yeah. His, when his daughter was kidnapped. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
The car drove up, the car door opened, the front seat was pushed forward, and the blindfolded Raymond was forced into the back seat of the car where the man who had been waiting with him joined him. The other man was driving. Raymond only ever heard these two voices. Mm. From court documents, quote, The head covering did not completely cut off the vision of the boy because of the nature of the material of which it was made. He could distinguish light and darkness in indistinct forms. Raymond was able to trace part of the route followed by the vehicle in which he was being conveyed. It went to the corner of Mount Royal Boulevard and Besboro Avenue, turned right on Mount Royal, then left on St. George Boulevard, past Centennial Place, thence, this is in the writing, thence, mm -hmm. I would never write thence. Yeah, no, thence. To the New Brunswick Power Plant and Edinburgh Drive, and past an A&W takeout restaurant on Mountain Road, end quote. Mm, it's a delicious route. But <laughs> it ends with A&W. That's what I'm talking about. But young Raymond is keeping track. I, I'm not, I'm not pretty... too sure if I would have the wherewithal to do that at that age, but maybe, I mean, your senses are hyper aware and you're thinking, oh my God, where are we going? You would probably want to pay attention to where that was. I would like to think mm -hmm. I would absolutely be paying attention to my surroundings right. and absorbing all of the info I But you can. don't do that on the best day. That's where I was going. Yeah. Yeah. At no point in my 46 years of life has that been a, a strong suit of mine. No. At some point, the car pulled over, and the men dragged Raymond out and to a payphone attached to the side of a building. They called the Steen's house, and Cy answered the phone. Sarah, the grandmother, had escaped from her masking tape prison after about 15 minutes and had called Cy, who had raced home from the restaurant. Obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. After letting Raymond talk to Cy, the kidnappers demanded of Mr. Steen that he pay them $15,000 quickly if he ever wanted to see Raymond again. Doesn't sound like a lot of money, but we're talking 74 or... Yeah. Yeah, so, you know. Cy was more than willing to pay for the return of his son, but needed time to get the cash together. Cy was told to hurry up, and after hanging up the phone, he raced back to the restaurant to see how much cash they had on hand. This poor father mm -hmm. is like, what do I do? What do I do? So if he's being told quickly, don't involve the police, the, the usual kidnapper fare, yep. of course you're just going to race and do what you got to do. We, we live in a very uh, technologically savvy time. And so how I'd react now would probably be very different than how I would back then in, in 74. Yeah. yeah. So consider the technology. You're, you're not going to be... Uh, yeah. You're not going to be texting somebody saying what's going on while you're talking on a landline to somebody else. Well, exactly. You know, I can see how my instinct would in that time would probably be, okay, let me go see what I have. Yeah. Let me go try to tr see what I can pull together. After the phone call, the kidnappers shoved Raymond back into the back seat of the car. They drove to a building where the boy was taken up two flights of stairs and into a sparsely furnished apartment and plopped onto a carpeted floor. Raymond was made to sit there and was not allowed to remove the balaclava. The kidnappers made small talk with Raymond. He told them he was hungry. One of the kidnappers agreed to grab him some food and went out after taking $10 from the boy so he could pay for it himself. <laughs> like, geez, talk about generosity there. <laughs> I guess you're a psychopath. You're not going to... Yeah, exactly. The remaining kidnapper joined Raymond on the floor, where they continued to chat until the other man returned with a box of Dixie Lee fried chicken and Coke. Sure. Raymond could eat, 
but he was forced to keep his head covering over his eyes. I wonder what the small talk was that they had mentioned. So uh, how about that Bobby Orr? Mm-hmm. You right. Like, how's that? Yeah. Just stuff like that. One of the kidnappers called Sai at the restaurant, and Sai told him that he would need more time to get the cash together. There was not enough money there at the restaurant. Yeah. After hanging up, now more desperate than ever, Sai called Milton Palmer, the manager of the local Bank of Nova Scotia, and begged him to get the $15,000 he required to free his son. This is also reminding me of Fargo. It, it seems a lot like yeah. something like that. Yeah. Palmer agreed to help and went to work doing what he could to make this happen, and Sai drove home to await further instructions. The Moncton City Police had become involved at this point. I'm not sure who called them or when or why. Mm -hmm. There's not really a timeline. According to court documents, when the kidnappers called back, police were listening in, quote, at the New Brunswick Telephone Company building with the aid of the telephone company technicians with the consent of Mr. Steen. Mm -hmm. So Mr. Steen was aware, we're going to be listening to the phone call. Just do, you know. Man, it must have been very frustrating as officers back then because your your options for monitoring, your options for tracking were so, so limited. You actually have to go to the to the telephone company. Yeah. 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 And and what are you like, what are you gonna get there? Maybe a rough area. I don't know. But I don't you know. know like how the... so like yeah. Wow. After ensuring they had recorded the serial number of all the bills, Milton Palmer and the accountant from his bank branch delivered the $15,000 in $10 bills to Cy Steen at his home. It would be a wad of cash. It would be a massive wad. Soon after the bank manager left the Steen residence around 3.30 a.m., the fourth and final phone call came. During that seven-minute phone call... Sai told the kidnapper that he had the cash, and the kidnapper gave instructions for him to drop it off. It's unclear why, but although they were listening in, and the technology existed to do so, Moncton police did not trace the location of that call. Very odd, then. Why do you, what's the purpose of just listening, just trying to glean any info you can, but not trying to track? That doesn't make sense. No. Cy Steen stuffed the $15,000 into a canvas satchel and got into his Thunderbird and began his drive to the rendezvous at the Riverview Mall. The kidnappers were mobile again as well on their way to the designated spot. Raymond in the back seat with one of the men later reported there was no talking at all in the car. He had no idea which man was beside him. Mm. The kidnappers arrived before Cy Steen and parked out of sight in a darkened area in view of the drop site. They didn't have long to wait for Sai to arrive. The men watched Sai's car appear and slowly make its way to the drop location in a ditch. Sai did as he was told, dropped the money right there, and drove his car forward 100 meters to await Raymond's release. They didn't seem like stupid guys. They want him to be facing the other direction so he can't drive at them. Yep. You know, it's, it's much harder to reverse than it is to drive forward. And if you're looking backwards, you're not going to see as much as though you were looking directly at something. Yeah, good observation. The kidnappers cautiously made their way to the ditch, watching for any sign of police presence. Not seeing anything out of place, they stopped at the drop, grabbed the cash, 
and released Raymond still wearing the balaclava over his head. Raymond was told not to look back or remove his blindfold and the kidnappers pointed him in a direction and told him to walk that way. Around what was later determined to be about the halfway point, Raymond ripped off his balaclava and made a run for Sai's car and hopped in. Shit. The kidnappers had driven off. After a quick reunion, Sai and Raymond drove off too. I was not expecting for them to be reunited. You, well, you, you don't often hear this in kidnapping situations. No, so. or that uh, the money gets picked up and the whole thing just seems to go down. It, currently, it seems like a successful transaction. You might be asking yourself, though, where were the police at this point? I very much am asking myself that. It appears that uh, there'd been a communication breakdown at some point. <laughs> oh, no. The four police cars dispatched to the mall area did not arrive until moments after the drop had happened. Brilliant. Two of the cars were passed by Size Thunderbird, with Raymond safely inside, on its way back to the family restaurant. From court documents, quote, One police car parked in a private driveway just east of the mall. A second proceeded to set up a roadblock west of the mall, and a third police car occupied by Corporal Bourgeois and Constable O'Leary went to an area east of the first-mentioned police car, end quote. That's a pretty serious guffaw. Yeah. Hmm. Detectives Carnes, Cassidy, and Cudmore were in the police car parked at the east of the mall, They watched as a 1968 to 1970 two-door Cadillac car with a light beige body passed them following a blue Dodge. The Dodge carried on straight and they turned southerly on Wentworth Street and as it entered that street, the headlights went out. Having been passed by the Dodge twice already, the three detectives made the decision to follow it. Officers Crandall and Galbraith were following the Dodge as well, and proceeded to initiate a traffic stop on that blue car. The detectives were going to back them up. The Cadillac made a U-turn on Wentworth Street and returned northerly, turned right, and proceeded easterly onto Cloverdale Road, with the lights still out. One of the other officers radioed Corporal Bourgeois and Constable O'Leary in their car to let them know they were the ones who were supposed to check out the caddy. Corporal Bourgeois replied, okay. This was the last time he and O'Leary were heard from. Mm. As the two cars pulled over the Dodge, it became clear that the communication issues were much worse than first anticipated. Yeah, yeah. In the Dodge were three people. One of them was the chief of the city of Moncton's 115-man police force, C. Moody Weldon. The major stop had taken place on the wrong car. Wow. Yeah. So there's some pretty significant uh, errors taking place here. Well, think about it. How often has a small police force like Moncton had to deal with a kidnapping? This is probably the first one that any of them have ever seen. For sure. And I don't think that kidnap training was something that was happening quite extensively in the 60s and early 70s. Uh, for sure. But uh, these are significant errors. Mm-hmm. Uh, significant. But uh, again, I'm going back to technology, communica- it was much more difficult to keep open lines of communication amongst each other. You've got your radio and stuff. But if like, I don't know. It's just challenging to hear these fumbles. Yeah. And not, not, 
and I'll pick up on them. And we'll take a break right here. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. And your thoughts so far are you're you're quite concerned, I'm sure. I'm really surprised and pleased to hear about the safe outcome for yeah. uh, the father and son. Yes. That's not a typical uh, outcome you hear on a true crime podcast. No. With a kidnapping. No. Um, so that's great. It's frustrating to hear about the, um, as I said, the fumbles by the officers taking place to this point, but I'm not in their shoes, so it's difficult to chastise. Can't really judge. Yeah. You just can't. At approximately 5.30 a.m., on the morning of Friday the 13th, December 1974, more than 40 minutes after Raymond's release, the Moncton police notified the local RCMP of the kidnapping and exchange of cash for the young victim. The exchange of money for the victim had taken place at the Riverview Mall, which was RCMP jurisdiction. Okay. They should have been brought into the investigation much earlier, oh not only due to the jurisdictional issue, but the RCMP is much better versed and more experienced in major crimes like kidnapping than a local police force would Absolutely. be. They were asked to set up roadblocks covering access into and out of Moncton. It was too late, though. Somehow the kidnappers and the cash had slipped away, and now two Moncton City police officers, Corporal Bourgeois and Constable O'Leary, were not responding to radio calls. Oh, God, yeah, okay. As the search began for the two missing officers, Chief Weldon told reporters that he was hopeful that the pair, both husbands and fathers, would be okay. He said, quote, Personally, I feel that when they went to check this car, they were met at gunpoint or something like that, and they could have been taken as hostages for the mm -hmm. getaway. Hopefully they'll kick them out shortly and they'll make them walk back, end quote. It's a lot of hope you're placing on that. Yeah, but you don't want to think the worst. For sure. Or at least publicly, as the chief of police, that's not. Yeah, you don't. You don't want it. Yeah, you don't want to go on on TV or on the radio and be like, "Oh, jeez, yeah, I'm terrified." Yeah. Holy shit, I'm scared crapless. That day near Magnetic Hill, two RCMP corporals spotted and pulled over a 1969 Cadillac matching the description of the car that Bourgeois and O'Leary had gone after. The driver was a short, scruffy-looking, curly-haired. 25-year-old man later identified as Richard Ambrose. It's pretty young. Yes, very young. 25, yeah. To be involved in such a crime like yeah. that, yeah. But, I mean, the guys who uh, took Jimmy Pattison's daughter were also quite young. Yeah, but that was just a bungled. That was completely bungled. Yeah, yeah. The cops patted the young man down and found he had a large amount of money on him, including a large roll of $10 bills. Hmm. The cash found in Ambrose's pockets added up to a whopping $5,492. A small house in Moncton would have sold for between twenty dollars and $25,000 at the time. Shit. Many of the bills had serial numbers matching the ones recorded by the Bank of Nova Scotia bank manager and his accountant before giving the cash to Cy Steen. 
Ambrose was arrested and the car was taken to a location nearby for further examination. From a Canadian press article, quote, Corporal Reese said he examined the car and found a set of keys, two pairs of gloves, and nylon stockings in the area of front seat. He said he found pieces of rope and what appeared to be mud in the trunk of the car. The gloves were blood-stained, and the keys found appeared to belong to a police car that Bourgeois and O'Leary had been driving. Mm. The blood was determined to be human. Hairs later determined to be that of O'Leary, Bourgeois, and Raymond were also found in the Cadillac. Yikes. A second man... James Lawrence Hutchison, 43, formerly of Picton, Ontario, called police to turn himself in, but he was unwilling to tell them where he was at first. Hutchison was arrested outside his Moncton apartment at 141 Cameron Street without incident after surrendering that day. The cops were outside waiting for him, mm-hmm. so he thought, yeah, it's best if I just go out with my hands up. And... Yeah, well, if your plan is to surrender, mm-hmm. uh, it would be stupid to come out uh, waving a gun. Ambrose and Hutchison were initially charged with the kidnapping of the grade nine student, Ray Steen. Mm-hmm. But there was still the matter of the two missing cops. Yeah. Hutchison and Ambrose denied any knowledge of what had happened to them. On Saturday, December 14th, Moncton police, RCMP, other law enforcement, and trained searchers from numerous other organizations were brought in to assist in the hunt for the missing officers. The Dodge car driven by one of the police officers was found in an abandoned railway station in Salisbury, New Brunswick. The keys found in the car Ambrose had been driving fit the ignition and the trunk. Okay. Corporal Bourgeois' driver's license had been found near the Shediac River, leading authorities to focus their search where they did. They scoured the wooded areas near Salisbury, about 32 kilometers west of Moncton. What was that river called again, Mike? The Shediac. Oh. From a Canadian press article, quote, Police adamantly refused to give up hope that the two missing officers were still alive. Inspector Turner said that they might be handcuffed to a tree, locked or bound in a woodland cabin, in some downtown apartment, or just about anywhere else. All we can do is hope, the inspector said. And that would be a... a highly plausible potential. Like, for sure, I could understand instead of killing them, just cuffing them, abandoning them somewhere, give you time to escape Mm -hmm. without having to now deal with murder charges. Even the New York Times did a brief article on the kidnapping and the search for the missing officer. So it was that big a story at the time. According to another CP article, snow flurries were falling as the search continued on Mm. Sunday morning. There was a brief glimmer of hope as two police issue revolvers and a portable radio were found. This hope was short-lived as mere hours later, searchers discovered two freshly covered dirt mounds in the snowy landscape near the place where the firearms were discovered. Oh, shit. The piles were around three meters apart and the size and shape of them had searchers obviously concerned. Fearing the worst, they solemnly began to dig quickly uncovering the bodies of 33-year-old father of two, Constable Michael O'Leary, and his partner, Corporal Aurel Bourgeois, 43, and the father of four children. Both men had been executed, shot in the head, tossed into hastily dug holes, and then quickly covered with dirt. The shallow graves were about 250 meters from the roadway, 
they each had a set of handcuffs their own dangling attached to a single wrist it appeared that o'leary had also been shot in the chest oh, say what you want about the errors in the everything leading up to that these are just two individuals out working they're doing try, their job, yeah, yeah. Try, trying to capture criminals they're doing the right thing yeah and, and it's it's just money yeah. You don't like and it's not, just and, money. And not, I mean, I'm sure that would have been equivalent to forty or fifty grand now, but that's not like Yeah. That that's not a lot of money to to murder someone. Not that there's like a point yeah. where you're like, well, that that's understandable, but that's uh yeah, these are just two two hardworking guys trying to stop criminals. A search turned up evidence that appeared to tell the story of the officer's last moments. Mm. A short distance away there was a red spot on a tree that turned out to be blood. What appeared to be furrows in the snow, thought to be drag marks, led to the grave sites. Shovels were later recovered nearby and in the Shediac River. Constable Marcel Odette found more of the ransom money, $5,000 in $10 bills, buried in a can near Albert Mines, New Brunswick. One of the arresting officers told journalist Rob Tripp what he surmised had happened. From Rob Tripp's site, cancrime.com, quote, They were handcuffed to a tree about 20 to 30 feet from where the graves were dug, Swansburg said. They could hear the graves being dug. The officers likely were taken to the site stuffed in the trunk of a car. Swansburg said Hutchinson and Ambrose first tried to dig with snow shovels, but the ground was too hard. They drove into Moncton and bought shovels and picks at a Moncton hardware store at 8.15 on December 13th, receipts showed. And there were later witnesses who had seen them there. Yeah. Swansburg said he believes, based on his investigation, that there was some sort of scuffle at the tree where O'Leary was shot in the shoulder. The two officers were forced into the graves where each was shot through the head once. There was hardly any blood anywhere else, Swansburg said. Hutchison and Ambrose filled in the graves and fled. End quote. Holy shit, so they took the time to go back to the city buy appropriate digging mm-hmm. tools, yep. come back. Like it, in my mind, all I can think of, there's so much opportunity during all of that time for them to choose a different direction. Yeah. It's like, we don't have the right tools. Maybe we should pretend like we're just going to leave. We've yeah. got 15 grand. We yeah. can go, uh, by the time they're found, I'm sure we could be on an airplane. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Just... One of the saddest things I read about was that on the same day as discovery of the bodies of the two slain officers, the Christmas party, which had been planned by one of them, was to be held for the children of the Moncton Police Force's members had to be canceled. This would be a painful Christmas for the families of the bourgeois and O'Leary, as well as the rest of the police force and all of the Monctonians. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Such a small town too. So not just families will have a, a, a terrible holiday, but I'm sure. Lots of a, connections. A, a, yeah. A vast majority or, or chunk of people in that town were greatly impacted and they had a pretty shitty Christmas that year, I bet. Canada still had the death penalty at the time. Oh. And although no one had been executed in the country since 1962, there did not seem to be a better application of that particular uh, sentence. Mm-hmm. People wanted blood. Calls for Ambrose and Hutchison to be hung came from across the country. 
Well, that's a pretty specific method of uh, execution. It's the only one actually ever used in Canada since 1867. Really? Yep. We'll get into that. Oh, fascinating. Uh, a $10,000 reward was put forth by a police union for more information that would lead to the conviction of the suspected perpetrators in the case. Mm -hmm. They, of course, were denying everything. Another man, though, James Nelligan, had a story to tell from court documents. Quote, James Nelligan had a conversation with Hutchison in which the latter stated he intended to kidnap Cy Steen and his girlfriend and to wait in Steen's house at night for Steen to return home from the restaurant. James Nelligan went on several drives with Hutchison to observe Cy's restaurant and Steen's home mm. to ascertain what time Steen left the restaurant and returned home. A thirty-eight caliber revolver loaned by James Nelligan to Hutchison, which, at the latter's request, had been hidden under a rock by Daryl Henwood on December 14th, after the crime, had one fired case in the chamber when found by the police. Each of the police officers was killed by a bullet fired into his skull from the other policeman's revolver. Okay. Constable O'Leary was also wounded in the shoulder by a bullet possibly fired from the thirty-eight caliber revolver yeah. loaned by Nelligan to Hutchison. Yeah, my immediate thoughts were, oh, only one fired round in the gun, but two, but yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The two police officers were killed with different revolvers. It is likely that if one person killed both police officers, he would have used only one revolver, which raises mm -hmm. the probability each police officer was killed by a different person, yeah, end quote. Makes complete sense, yeah. So both of these guys were murderers. Yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, why would you, if it was just one person, why would you put down the gun, pick up another one? Yeah. Like, it just makes no sense, yeah. Ambrose and Hutchison were further arrested for first-degree capital murder in the deaths of the two Moncton police officers. They pled... Not guilty. Surprise. Jeez. The suspected killers went to trial in the early spring of 1975. Over the 13 days of the joint trial proceedings, there was dramatic testimony. In a moment that the defense pounced on, Raymond Steen testified he believed the men who kidnapped him were different heights than the defendants. Oh. As we know, though, uh, eyewitnesses, especially a 14-year-old with a balaclava over his yeah. face, are not always the best best yeah. witnesses. Yeah. So. I mean, he got the directions down. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. From a CP article on April 2nd, 1975, quote, The jury heard 76 Crown witnesses during the trial. The expert's testimony showed soil at the graves was similar to that found on Ambrose's boots, and that hair found on the vehicle used by Ambrose matched that of the slain policeman and the kidnap victim. A forensic scientist said that the men died almost instantly after being shot in the head, end quote. I would hope so. Neither of the accused killers testified in their own defense, nor were any witnesses called to explain any of the incriminating circumstantial evidence presented against them by the Crown. So they're not trying. They're not refuting any of the facts. So it's re it's refuted as it's presented. There is not a defense they're not case. Call, they yeah, didn't, yeah. They're not presenting anybody or anything themselves. Just right. Uh, the trial came to an end on April Fool's Day, nineteen seventy-five. Also from the April second, nineteen seventy-five CP article. Quote: James Hutchison, forty-seven, and Richard Ambrose, twenty-six 
were each convicted of two counts of murder punishable by death by a Supreme Court jury and sentenced to hang on June 13th. Hmm. The jury of eight men and four women deliberated two hours and 40 minutes and made no recommendation regarding clemency. The defendants showed no emotion as they heard the verdict from the jury foreman and then the sentences from Mr. Justice David M. Dixon, end quote. Mm. So they're sentenced to hang on June 13th. But as we know, an automatic appeal is filed, and that pushes the date back. And also, as we know, Canada had not executed anybody since 1962, although some people had still gotten the death sentence their cases were still before the court. Well, I was watching something the other day. In the States, anyways, it takes on average uh, 20 years yeah. from when somebody's been... Uh, That's cruel and unusual, frankly. But yeah. anyway. Yeah. Uh, it ta- yeah, it usually takes 20 years from the time somebody's sentenced to death and, and they're actually executed. On June 12, 1975, the wives of Bourgeois and O'Leary split a $381,000 trust fund raised to help support them after their husband's murders. The same year, the Moncton Police Force's response to the kidnapping was also scrutinized heavily. Yeah, yeah. The mayor promised a major reorganization of the department. So they knew where those holes were. I mean, obviously, I know in hindsight because uh, I wrote the thing (laughs) dependent on historic uh, documents, so. Like you said, it's tough to, when you live in a small town that probably has no history or record, at least for these officers of how to handle this kind of a situation, Yeah, it, it can be difficult to manage it. And there's no internet, there's no mind hunter, there's no... No uh, major, you know, true crime nope. TV but shows. Without a doubt, um, balls were dropped. They they could have immediately contacted the RCMP, yeah. who would have been better handled to at least advise. Yeah, there are absolutely errors that happened by uh, the officers, the the, the police force, the police force. Yes, yeah. uh, that led to the death of two of their own. two. Yeah. yeah. The automatic appeal that had been filed on behalf of Ambrose and Hutchison was dismissed on July 12th, 1976, and their death sentences were upheld. Exactly two weeks later, something happened. Oh, boy. The government of Pierre Trudeau, father of our current PM, Mm -hmm. introduced Bill C-84, proposing the abolition of the death penalty. After another lengthy debate and free vote in the House, the bill was passed and became law on July 26th, 1976. So these two were saved from the hangman's noose by two weeks. They are the last Canadians in history to have their death sentences upheld after appeal. Their sentences were commuted to life in prison after that. So since Confederation... Uh, as I mentioned, anybody who was executed would be hanged. 1,481 people had been sentenced to death, and 710 of those had been executed. Half of the people who had been sentenced to death were actually executed. Of those executed, 697 were men and 13 were women. Wow. So Canada has hung 13 women. Yeah. That's kind of weird. I'd like to learn more about that, so... Maybe we'll do an episode on on capital punishment in Canada later. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, I honestly would have thought 
that the number of women executed would be higher. But if we're looking at the times, mm-hmm. you know, uh, women were thought of very differently and meek and, yeah. you know, so yeah, that'd be fascinating to dig into. Both Ambrose and Hutchison remained in jail. Their parole was rejected at every hearing. James Hutchison was a man with a long criminal history, even prior to the kidnap and murders. He was not contrite for what he had done and was not forthcoming with details about his crimes. He'd said squeezing the trigger was, quote, a reflex action. Jesus. In November of 2000, while on work release at the Kingston Humane Society, 73-year-old Hutchison escaped. Oh, fantastic. He was caught a day later in the basement suite of a woman in Spencerville, Ontario, who claimed she had no idea who he was. Someone had just said, hey, take care of my uncle, take him in for a while, he needs a place to stay, so she did. Sweet jibbers. Hutchison was brought back to jail. In 1999, after 13 months of successful day parole, Richard Ambrose who had changed his name to Bergeron, was released on full parole after 25 years in prison. For real. 1999. He was determined to be a low risk for reoffending, and he was to serve out his remaining life sentence in the community. So when somebody who has been sentenced to life gets out of jail, gets full parole, they are still under sentence. They are just now serving their sentence in the community. Richard went to live in Edmonton, where he lived with his new wife. Ambrose had a work-related accident in 2003. Oh, no. He received a concussion, broken ribs, collapsed lung, and a broken wrist. It was also determined that this left him with brain damage. He also went off his psychiatric medication at the time. Oh, sweet. And then became violent with his sister and his wife. His behavior worsened, and he was prone to extreme anger and violent outbursts, even with the medication. And his behavior just kept getting worse and worse and worse. That's what you want from a convicted murderer now released. Well, he was sent back to prison to complete his life sentence and has not been afforded parole since. Oh, thank Jesus. In 2005, Charlie Bourgeois, son of Corporal Bourgeois, spoke to sports writer Mark Spector about his memories about the terrible events on that December weekend so many years ago. Charlie had gone on to big things after his dad's murder. At the time of the interview, he was the coach of the Université du Moncton hockey team and a former NHL defenseman with Calgary Flames, St. Louis Blues, and the Hartford Whalers. He'd played 290 games in the big league. Wow. Right? That's amazing. So he told Mark Spector, quote, There were several days we didn't know what was happening. Dad didn't come home. Those three days of not knowing, those were trying times, Bourgeois said. Yeah, no kidding. Back home, nothing like that ever happened. The police force just wasn't prepared, end quote. Mm -hmm. Just like we were saying. Yep. And it was his dad who encouraged his love of hockey. He went on to tell Mark Spector, quote, My dad, my hockey coach, building the outdoor rink in the back, He'd gone out there hours in the night flooding the big outdoor rink. Wouldn't miss any games, even if he was on duty. You'd see him up in the corner of the building, a guy dressed in his uniform, sneaking in. He never played the game, but he had a great passion for it. He just loved the game of hockey. He's probably why I'm still involved in this game at 45 years old. Oh. End quote. 
Well, that's really beautiful. Right? Yeah. After a battle with cancer, James Hutchison died in prison. <sighs> oh, my heart. Richard Bergeron, formerly Ambrose, is looking for love from his jail cell very near here. His profile on Canada Inmates Connect reads, Name, Richard Bergeron. Institution, Matsqui Penitentiary. Date of birth, January 6, 1949. Convicted of capital murder. Expected release date, unknown. (laughs) Interested in corresponding with women. Bio goes on to say, I am a 71-year-old, twice-divorced survivor. I survived the death penalty in Canada. I survived an industrial accident in November of 2003 while I was out of prison on a parole that gave me, quote, frontal lobe axonal diffusion. I'm an Acadian Métis, a wood sculptor, a pipe carrier, a sweat lodge conductor, and a sun dancer. I'm a serious spiritualist, but I don't preach it. I'm 5 foot 5 inches tall, and I weigh 145 pounds. From my picture, you can see I'm small in stature, I walk at a fast pace three and a half miles a day when it doesn't rain. I would like to correspond with any healthy Canadian women, any race, between 25 and 45 years old. Many women may be curious about my original crime in 1974, but because of my brain injury, damage in parentheses, I don't and can't remember my crime. How convenient! My accident in 2003 wiped my brain clean. Wow. In 1974, my last name used to be Ambrose. I have two children, a son and a daughter, and I have two granddaughters. Most of the prisoners in the prison don't believe I have a brain injury because I have an IQ of 142. My brain injury didn't make me stupid. No, you you already were. Right. Minus the IQ. I'm not rich, nor am I poor. I would never ask any woman for money, and I will never leave British Columbia, so I want someone long-term and permanent here if a relationship were to develop. I was sent back to prison because I wouldn't continue taking medication for my brain injury. I didn't break any law or violate any parole rules. Sometimes that's just the way it goes. Be well. Exclamation point. The so, end. He's great at not taking accountability for his actions. And, and first off, you're not a goddamn survivor. You created survivors. Right. You made other people yep. survivors. You're not a survivor. You have caused every single thing that has happened to you mm-hmm. by those goddamn actions. And and two, why, does, why was he... Measuring his walking distance in miles. He's a goddamn Canadian. Oh, Do it in kilometers. Okay, stop. That's that's silly. It's, I'm just it, what popped into my head. Yeah, fair enough. He wrote this. Yeah, yeah. A lot of this bothered me. Yeah. Conveniently, his whole crime has been wiped away. Yeah, I bet you he can recall every other thing from his past, though. You ask mm-hmm. him about his family. I'm sure. Oh no, you can recall all that. But I would never ask any woman for money. Well, why would you need to put that there? I think if you, yeah, if you have to, it's that, that adage, if you have to proclaim something, it's not true. Feel, Mike, everybody says I'm hilarious. If you have to say that to somebody, you're probably not hilarious. Let me tell you how smart I am. You're probably not that smart. Yeah. So if he's having to proclaim, never ask a woman for money. Yeah. It's completely what he's going to do. 
The story he tells about his reincarceration at the end of his bio is a little different than the one that I read on his parole revocation documents. Mm. I mean, you know, I already mentioned why he went back because yep. he was being violent. Yeah. They said he was being violent. Yep. If you're being violent and you are under a life sentence, you will be sent back to jail. You don't have to be charged with anything new. If you can't trust a convicted murderer. Right. Who can you trust? Well, there's two sides to every story, Scott. Yeah. The convicted murderers. And the authorities. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who do I go with? I'm so, so difficult. There was another thing that bothers me, and this comes up over and over and over again. How do convicted criminals, murderers, get to change their names in Canada? Why is that a thing? Why should they be able to do that to hide from their crime? That's a really good question. You know, like, yeah. I, I, don't under, I don't understand why that's okay to do. It just seems like, well, if I'm not that same person, we saw it with Kelly Ellard. Yeah. We've seen it with, well, uh, Vince, Vince Lee is a different story because he was uh, found not criminally responsible. But there are a lot of other instances. Uh, David Shearing has also changed his name, uh, the, the Wells Gray Killer. Yeah. So I, I think w once you're released, I can understand not having the ability to mandate no name change. But if I if I remember correct, I don't know. This happened while he was in prison. He changed his name while in prison. Or maybe he didn't. I don't know. Because I, I don't think, know what I don't know what the timeline is at all is yeah. on it. But I know David Shearing changed his name in prison. So I mean like that. I, I'm sorry. You you committed a heinous offense. Here's the thing. If you're under a life sentence in Canada, if you like mm -hmm. you are under that sentence until you close your eyes forever. Yep. That's it. Yeah. You do not get to do that. I think that's a very interesting topic. Yeah. I mean, my instincts tell me I agree with you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, under certain conditions, first degree murder and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah no, you. Um, if you have been sentenced to life and have not been found innocent under appeal, mm -hmm. that that is that is not an option for you anymore. You, you cannot hide from your crime. You, yes, you you cannot hide from the accountability that mm -hmm. comes with murdering a person. The fact that somebody wants to change their name should be a giant red flag to any parole board. I just want to move I want to change my name because I want to move forward. No, you want to change your name because you want to run away from. Yeah. That's what you're doing. The moving forward is running away. Yeah. It is not taking mm. accountability. You are not Kelly Ellard, whatever she has changed her name to, is not Kelly Ellard anymore, you know? And uh, my friend Alan Warren, he's got a book coming out in which he actually talks to David Shearing. <laughs> and David Shearing now refers to David Shearing in the third person. <laughs> it's a way for them to psychologically compartmentalize, put away their massive crimes that they committed as though someone else did it. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to feel what they should be feeling. They don't have to feel this amount of guilt that should actually come along with, yeah. holy crap, I took people's lives. Yeah. You know? Uh, uh, side note, I, I did see Alan R. Warren on my television last night. Oh, which show was it? Oh, I can't remember. It's I think it's some Oxygen Network show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, He's been in a few, and he was probably talking about Rod... Rodney Alcala. It's exactly what he was talking yeah. about. Yeah. yeah, he's he's being asked to talk about that case a lot because he wrote a book on yeah, it. So. Yeah, yeah. It was just, I was like, I guess I'm half paying attention, half on my laptop, and I look up, I'm like, wait a minute. 
Yeah. Because that I had to wait a bit for to, his name to pop up. But yeah. yeah. We talked to, uh, actually, I think the episode was released today. We talked to Anne Rule's daughter, Leslie. Mm. She's now writing true crime. Oh, wow. So In she was writing paranormal kind of. Yeah. Like a, a different kind of stuff. Yeah. But now she is writing true crime because people kept asking, hey, your mom wrote some great true crime, oh, so yeah. why don't you? One of the few books I've read was... Uh, uh, Stranger Beside. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, great. So that's it for this week's case. Um, interesting one. Lots of opinions from us here, so... Well, it was... Um... Yeah, it was an interesting one because there were outcomes that I wasn't expecting on mm-hmm. all sides. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't expecting uh, the father and son to be reunited and neither one of them physically injured. At all. I wasn't expecting one of the murderers to get released. Uh, On full parole. On full parole. Like, so there was a a whole, you know, I wasn't expecting the uh, law enforcement to have made the errors that were made. So there was just a lot in there that was quite, uh, took directions I wasn't expecting. Let's do some voicemails, 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 voicemails. We need a jingle for that. I think you just created it. Okay. You can leave us a voicemail at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN. That's 1-877-DARKPTN. If your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. Here is the first one. Um, oh, well, here's someone from Nova Scotia. This This will probably make me feel better. Hey, Mike and Scott, it's uh, Aaron here. Uh, I'm from Nova Scotia, Canada, and uh, there you are there, from there, Mike. So um, from actually from Windsor, um, pretty close to you, from Bridgewater. But anyway, just calling to uh, say that I listened to your podcast yesterday about uh, Highways of Tears, and uh, it just reminded me of uh, a local guy here in Nova Scotia. His name's Classified. He's a, he's a local um, artist. He's, uh, he sings rap, and um, he did a song in tribute to the Highways of Tears, also to the tribute to the um, Indigenous people here in Nova Scotia about the missing and murdered Indigenous, indigenous people. So uh, I just thought you would um, maybe want to check it out. His name's Classified, and it's called Powerless. So um, thanks a lot. Um, love listening to your podcast. I've been listening for quite a while now. I'm over here, and I listen to every episode. And I can't wait for every Monday to come listen to the next one. So uh, thanks, guys, and go uh, shit in your hat. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, yeah, I am. I am very well versed in classified. Yeah, I, 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 I love, listen to him. I love classified. I have for a very long time. I don't know that song though, so I, I'm good. I'm gonna go check that out. Thank, thanks for the uh, recommendation. Yeah, I'm aware of that song, and I quite dig it. So he's one of Canada's uh, best uh, artists, in my opinion, hip hop artists, in my opinion. So again, that's classified, powerless. Uh, you can probably find it on iTunes or uh, on on Apple Music or Spotify. Pretty oh, easy. Sure. Okay, this one looks like it's from somewhere in British Columbia. Ooh. Dr. Jean in the house. I'm back. I wanted to extend my sincerest gratitude to you guys for your immeasurable care and understanding put forth in the latest Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's podcast that you've created. My name is Quinn Moffat-Bird. I am a proud member of the Tlaitli Tene Nation. That's Platelet Tene Nation that you've mentioned in your latest cast. 
I have relations from many groups and villages all over BC, so much so that I'm still meeting my own cousins at 27 years old. If I may, really quickly, I personally have a great auntie who's gone missing on the Highway of Tears between Port Edward and Prince George. Her name was Snooksy. Her real name was Eunice Esther Bird. She was born March 6, 1947, and went missing at 16 years old in 1963. We've never found her. Never heard from her. She's just gone. Again, I really do want to thank you guys for how much you do for all of us Yumber Yarders. Please don't ever change. All of the care that you guys put in has really changed my life and my perspective on so many things. I want you to continue being you and especially never quit shitting in your hats. All my relations. All my relations, Quinn. That's awesome. That was incredible. And, and thank you. Thank you very much for sharing uh, uh, about Snooksy. You made me cry a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, a bit uh, out, out of words. I'm at a loss for words. Um, that was beautiful. Yeah, you, you're not good with words anyway. <laughs> I just lost the few I had. Here's another one from uh, British Columbia. Hey, Mike. Hey, Scott. Um, I just listened to your Highways of Tears episode. Um, ironically enough, whilst driving the Highway of Tears from Terrace to the Highway 37 Junction. Um, massive fan of your guys' show. Super grateful to the guy who got me onto it. Um, yeah. Thank you guys for doing what you do, and keep keep at her. Take a shit in your hat, boys. There you go. <laughs> Concise and awesome. I love it. Yeah. I, I, I think that would creep me out if I was driving along the Highway of Tears listening to the true crime episode on the highway of tears. It just may. Yeah. It just may not be something that, uh, you would be, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that wouldn't be good. Give me the heebs. Give me the heebie jeebies. Yeah. Well, thank you everybody who took, took the time to leave us a voicemail this week. Muchos gracias, as thank they say. You, thank you. Thank or, you. Or in our other official language, merci. Bocus. Merci. No, it's merci beaucoup. Mercy Bokus. You know. I said it in a Texan accent. <laughs> Mercy Boku. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Short Arms, Stumpy McShort Arms. Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> That's what Carol calls him, Stumpy what? McShort Arms. Because ah, his arms look too, too short I've for his body. I've never noticed that. Next time you see him, you're not going to be able to unsee it. Shit. Stumpy McShort Arms. Damn it. I like, you know what? I, all right, all right, all right. Well, thank you for calling our voicemail line this week. It's one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN, one uh, We should get a real jingle done. We should actually get, get something. That would be funny. It's like the uh, Casino Taxi one from Nova Scotia. Casino oh, you've taxi, played that. Yeah. They're the fast one. Anyway. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's time for Patreon shout outs and, ooh, ooh. uh, and our donut money folks. What do we have this week? Let's see. Scott's got, uh, his amazing thinking Memory. cap yeah, on. My, all up in my noggin. Up in his pu- uh-huh. pu- pumpkin. <laughs> his pumpkin full of poop. <laughs> Scott's poop. Pumpkin. Pump. Poop pump. Pumpkin. 
I'm saying too many P's. First up, we have somebody who is um, from the land of mystery, unless Scott knows. Her name is Rochelle Prentice. Oh, Rochelle. Yeah. Rochelle Prentice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know her quite well. Oh? Yeah, yeah. You know where she's from? No. Excelsior Springs in in Kansas. Excelsior Springs in Kansas? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I get Kansas City. Oh. Yeah. Excelsior Springs in Kansas City. Well, fantastic. Yeah, Excelsior. I just like to say Excelsior Springs. Excelsior. To Excelsior and beyond. Yeah, it sounds like a very fancy word. <laughs> what does Rachel do in Excelsior Springs? Oh, uh, she is an automotive salesperson. Oh, fantastic. What yeah. kind of automotive does she sell? Uh, Batmobile replicas, specifically. Whoa. Yep. Of every iteration. Oh. They have in stock at all times three of every iteration of Batmobiles. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I don't know. Are you in the, in the market for a I'd, li- I'd like a Christian Bale style. Yeah. Yeah. They have them. Like the tank. Yeah, they have it. And it actually like a motorcycle pops out of it. Like it's the full meal deal. Oh, wow. Yeah. I need that in my life. Okay. Well, uh, you know who to reach out to now. If she can give me a deal, maybe. In Excelsior Springs. Excelsior. Uh, next we have, oh, mm-hmm. next, next we have Tanya, t- next we have Tanya Angelo, Tanya Angelo, and she is from Longueil, Quebec. Oh. Longueil. Wow. Yeah. I wonder what Tanya Angelo does for a living. In Quebec? Yeah. She makes uh, maple syrup. Oh. But a very specific kind, you know, they are, you put it in the- It's uh, got booze in it? No, silly goose. You put it in the in snow and you put a stick onto it and you make that delicious treat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a very specific kind of maple syrup they use oh, for fantastic. that. What do they call those things? Maple syrup trees. No, treat, not treat. I don't know. Oh, maple syrup treat and ice, sugar ice. You, you put, you put the- I know what you mean. And you put a stick- <laughs> Now you've got yourself like a snow, Europe, snow, uh, syrupy snow popsicle thing. Yeah. They're delicious. Next we have from Calgary, Alberta, our neighbor to the east, Cheryl Stockham or Cheryl Stockham, if she pronounces it that way. I think she does. What does Cheryl do, do you think, in Calgary? In Calgary? Yeah. Oh God. So it's a very cow puncher. No, no. But you're you're in the right direction. Oh, tipping. No. So you're but you're knocking on the door of what she does. She's hired to lift tipped cows. Oh, there you go. So that's her job in Alberta. Is she? She and she kind of like you know she gets paid a monthly salary. It's Mm -hmm. not like per cow. And so she she just roams the, the the fields. Of Calgary, and if she finds a uh, tipped cow, she lifts it back up, and she's got like a patented technique for how to like it's just it's, she's very sought after because of because uh, it's hard to lift a cow, Mike. Yeah, fair enough. It's hard to lift a cow, but she can do it on her own, and she's only five four. Oh wow! And one hundred and forty five pounds, and she can do that with the cow. Yeah, wow. Yeah, she's got yeah, she's got, muscly. She's very muscly, and it, but a lot of it's let. I don't want to get into it, Mike, okay, but she's great. Enough. Next, we have Alana Starwalt, yep. and she is from 
Boiling Springs, South Carolina. Sounds hot. Boiling Springs. Yeah, sounds hot. Like, it would be comfortable. What does she do in Boiling Springs? Well, somebody's got to boil the springs, Mike. Oh, there you go. So I mean, it's a, pretty. She's a spring boiler yeah, from Boiling Springs. Yeah, I mean, it's springs. pretty. I mean, it, you know, it just makes sense. Yeah, those the springs don't get boiled on their own. Wow. She has to light the burners underneath them. Well, I guess so. Yeah. Maintain them. Yeah. Fair enough. That you makes sense a, to me. You want a good chlorine balance with the with springs. And... With, yep. You need the good boiled springs. The best kind of springs are the boiled ones. I agree. Yep. I agree. Yep. Uh, otherwise, you know. Well, otherwise, it's you're just in water. Right. Okay. Fair yeah. Enough. I mean, you're just having a bath otherwise. And so boil that shit. Boil it. So we do have some donut money this week. Oh. And first up, we have Rachel Borth, longtime listener, first-time donutter. Hello from Kamloops, but born in Vanderhoof, oh. British Columbia. We talked about Vanderhoof yeah. last week. Yeah, the hoof. So Rochelle, Rochelle Borth, where do you think she's from? What, what do you think she does in, uh, in Kamloops? In Kamloops, what she does is, um, oh, she operates a drawbridge. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know there was a drawbridge to operate in Kamloops. There might be. No, there is. There's okay. three. Wow. She's one of three. One of three. Yeah, one of three. Well, she doesn't have to run back and forth between all three. No, no. How? Oh, my, that's just silly. No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> that would be tough work. She just maintains or operates one bridge. Uh, there, Nothing has passed under it for about seven years. Yep. So it's a pretty boring job, but hey, it there, pays. It pays. Unionized. So next we have uh, Sally Norris sent us a donation. Thank you, And Sally. she says, I hope Carol gets her share of donuts. She did this week. <laughs> and still loving every episode. Many thanks to you both. Donut, donut, microphone, headphones, Sally N. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I don't know where Sally's from, though. I do. Where? She's from Titusville. Titusville? In Florida. Florida. Yeah. I knew Titusville. I know you Florida. did. I yeah. know you yeah. did. Yeah. Um, and what does she do in Titusville? Oh, God, it's Florida, Mike. Does what? she blow up footballs? No, uh, but that's an interesting job. Okay, okay. She's an, an alligator wrangler. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough Yeah, they get, they get out. They, 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 they tend to. They get out. They well, I mean, to, most they, of them live out. They tend to wander. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, but if, if, you know, you're driving down the interstate. You need someone to wrangle them And off. you see uh, like yeah. a wandering gator. You call Sally. Boom. And she's down there. She's getting that gator out of there. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's a very hazardous job. It sounds like She it. only has one arm. And you know what she did? I don't. She sent us another donation uh, a few minutes later. Oh. And Holy. says, double, double, two donuts. Wow. So they, <laughs> there you go. So well, thanks. For, so, for somebody living in uh, Titusville, Florida, she, she knows her... her Canadian coffees. Yeah, she's wow. she's pretty good at that. So wow, well done. Uh, thank you, Sally Norris. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, thank you so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. Thank you, everybody who supports us with the donut money as well. Mm -hmm. If you really want to help support us, you can do so at Patreon.com/slash/DarkPoutine, or for one-time support, you can send us donut man money via PayPal. At our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Uh, give us a like on uh, Facebook. 
and Instagram. I'm not saying Twitter anymore because I'm done with that place. Oh, really? Eh? Oh, yeah, I'm just done. Twitter's been the, the social media platform I've used the least. Yeah. Well, you know what? Twitter has the word, a uh, particular word in it. Twit. Twit. Yeah, so. I thought you were going to go with er. No. Uh. So anyway, yeah, I won't be on Twitter as much. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> There, that's my rant for the day. <laughs> Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple, folks. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>